Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Welcome back for part two of our dive into diagnosing and managing tendinopathy with Dr. Robert Jan DeVos. Last week was all about getting your tendinopathy diagnosis right and getting going with the first-line exercise therapy treatment. Today is all about the other types of interventions that you might think about or the patients might ask you about. You're going to hear about injection therapies, heel lifts, shockwave and orthopedic surgery, among other things. Dan's asking the questions, so let's jump back into Achilles' tendinopathy. Another hot topic in the world of of tendon care and something that I think has changed a fair amount. What if the patient in front of you says, hey, my friend got a, a corticosteroid injection and you know it seemed to really help their pain. Do you think I should get one of those? What do you what do you say? You know, what are your what are the thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. It does depend on the specific question the patient has in front of me, what the patient has in front of me. And yeah, the corticosteroid has an immediate and short-term pain relieving effect. So somewhere up, up to eight weeks. If the patient uh, has a very important short-term uh, goal, you should consider it in careful consideration of the p- potential benefits and also the potential harms. This treatment also results in poorer uh, long-term outcomes than wait and see in, in various tendinopathies. And also a large database study shows that the tendon rupture risk after corticosteroid injections increases two to five-fold when compared to controls, with also the risk increasing with the number of injections. So there are there are some serious harms. But on the other hand, we have a recent placebo-controlled RCT that su- suggests that, that one to three pyritendinous corticosteroid injections may have clinical benefits when combined with an exercise therapy for, uh, for Achilles tendinopathy in the mid-portion. And I think this is a very interesting study. And I think we should also applaud the authors of that study for performing it because it's not easy to perform those studies. There are some limitations in this study, and, and we recently described these in the viewpoint of the GOSPT. And for this reason, because of these limitations, I would discourage implementation of, of corticosteroid injection on, on a very large scale. And I personally very rarely perform this type of injection. But on the other hand, this study also challenges our personal biases, and perhaps this treatment could still be considered if every other conservative treatment option fails. But also due to the uncertainties that remain after this new trial, I do not propose it as a standard treatment. That sounds like it makes sense and sounds like a pretty nuanced position of, you know, it's not our first line treatment. However, if we're exhausting all other options and you're not getting better, then maybe it's worth considering them, given that we talk to the patient about the potential downstream effects and the negative outcomes that can come of them. But if we've really exhausted our other options, it it can certainly be considered. You mentioned increased risk of ruptures. Is there a general timeline which those are expected if they're going to happen? From my clinical experience, it's the the times I did see it happen, then normally it would be 
weeks to months after the injection, but I would say after six months that chance will decrease. That's what my experience tells, but there's no exact data on this. There's one large American database study in which the, the risk of a tendon rupture in general in patients with Achilles tendinopathy is 4%. They did not really specify a time frame there, so it's uncertain in what time period that 4% is. It's not clear whether this yeah, risk is higher in the beginning stage of the disease or in the beginning stage of, of an, a specific intervention. What about if the patient in front of you says, okay, well, maybe we don't do corticosteroid injection or we we wait on that decision, but I've heard about these really cool platelet-rich plasma injections. Do you think that's a good idea? You know, What do you say to the patient in that case? PRP injections were considered to improve healing by release of growth factors from platelets in the blood. And multiple case series showed promising results. But already in 2010, we performed the first placebo-controlled RCT in this field and showed that it is not more effective in improving pain of function than a placebo, nor in improving tendon structure. Recently, the study was repeated in 240 patients with mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, and the results were the same. So I do not see a role for this injection treatment in Achilles tendinopathy. There's been a lot of discussion about PRP lately, so that's really, really good data to help clinicians inform that conversation that I have a feeling is just happening more and more and more commonly. So what other interventions are recommended alongside exercise interventions? We already discussed the main treatment principles already, which is the triad of education, load management advice, and and progressive strengthening exercises. For other adjunct treatments, we performed a living systematic review with a network meta-analysis where we included all randomized trials on the effectiveness of interventions for Achilles tendinopathy. The current findings indicate a range of treatment options available for Achilles tendinopathy and and particularly the the mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy. And in many cases, exercise therapy was used as treatment alongside an adjunct treatment. So active treatment seems to be superior to wait-and-see policy. But the certainty of the evidence is low to very low. So that's a bit disappointing. I think the the estimated treatment effects between different active conservative treatments was generally equal. So you could say, well, at least I would conclude that exercise therapy is is an excellent basis for tendons and added interventions will add minimally to exercise therapy regarding effectiveness of of treatment. And of course, it depends on the setting where you work and but but I think exercise therapy is accessible everywhere. It's not expensive and there are not a lot of harms. I think it also helps the people from, well, that more psychological perspective and also the, the load management advices that we give. So there are a lot of advantages. Of course, the disadvantage is that people have to invest and also have to do a lot of work by themselves. But I I still think that that is one of the cores of of this treatment. So remaining active or becoming active, however, still using that pain monitoring model, progressive strengthening. Sounds like, you know, if a patient is saying, hey, it really helps when I do X, and that happens to be a passive modality, as long as they're doing all the other things, 
it might be worth putting that in for that patient, but it's not something that you should necessarily go to as an, an effective treatment method. Does that make sense? I, I, yeah, I, I think that's really fair. And uh, exactly when, when considering adjunct treatments, I think we should discuss certain topics and the, the treatment effectiveness or mainly the uncertainty of it, uh, safety, the time cost, and also the clinical experience of the healthcare provider and the patient preference. We should all take that into account when, when considering it. And I think it's very crucial to make the right decision for the specific individual. Also in the guideline process, we also identified a number of adjunct treatments that have been assessed in randomized trials like shockwave therapy, the addition of heel lift. So there are really certain options that you could consider with with low risk of harms and still perhaps something that has a preference for the patient and, and something you could consider together. Yeah, could we touch on shockwave and heel lifts real quick and, and, and kind of what was the, the takeaway from the guideline on those? Yeah, so also for these ones, it's uh, there's a low level of evidence, and and also when you compare it to other active treatments, there, there there seems to be no not more benefit, clinically relevant improvement. Again, here it it can be considered because of that low uh, amount of of harmful events uh, that, that that we see after these treatments. Of course, costs are involved here, so that's something you need to discuss uh, with the patient. It, it could be an option, and I am aware of one recent randomized control trial where they also performed an arm with placebo shockwave therapy, and there we see that there was no difference between these two arms with the real focus shockwave and uh, 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 the placebo shockwave. So. I think here we should also be careful to think it's not not something we should implement for everyone, but still something uh, you can consider, although there's uh, a low level of evidence. Are there any things that we should not do as far as adjunct therapies or interventions? Yeah, yeah, we just discussed the, the, the corticosteroid injections, which I would be really careful with, uh, as well as the NSAIDs. And both of them can cause serious harms. And I think that's the reason also in, in our guideline why, why we discourage them. Based on this new study we just spoke about for the corticosteroid injections, I think, well, perhaps we can also change here a little bit that... We, we shouldn't say that we should never do it, but at least have a reservation to do this. If the patient says, well, why not NSAIDs? I, I feel a lot better. My pain's a lot lower when I do them. Why don't you want me to, to use them? You know, what is the, the thought process behind what's going on when these patients are taking NSAIDs? Yeah, so there are multiple RCTs showing that they don't have a benefit on the short or long term when compared to a placebo. And this is both for oral and topical administration. There's not uh, already a lot of evidence stating that that we should advise them. And on the other end, it can also cause serious harms like uh, gastrointestinal bleedings, things like that which we should be careful about, especially in patients with long-standing pain. If they use these medications for prolonged periods, that might also cause serious harms. So we don't see any evidence saying showing that they help short or long-term, but we do know that they can have quite serious side effects, especially if you're taking them over a fair period of time. But there's also an opportunity cost of like, that's time spending doing that. 
when we could be doing other things that we know work better. And then just kind of taking that into consideration with the patient preferences, like you mentioned, it's just, it's not a cut and dry, easy decision, but one to have, you know, with the patient and then kind of come to a mutual decision from there. That's uh, that's really important. So for those like worst case scenarios, those cases that are just not getting better, we've you know done exercise therapy, we've considered all uh, other other options. Is there ever a place for surgical interventions? And if so, you know when do those come in? Yeah. So the non-responders. So this is a hard group. It is a small group, luckily, but still. In these cases, surgery might be considered as as a last resort. And I think important here is to discuss the the expected effectiveness of a surgical intervention when you compare to a prolonged conservative treatment. And also here, again, the potential surgical complications, such as uh, wound healing problems, which is observed in approximately 10% of the cases after surgery. Yeah, and there are many different surgical techniques that have been described, and yeah, these are often related to the expertise of a specific surgeon and also the tissue abnormalities that have been observed in the patient. And the effectiveness of most of these procedures is assessed in case series. So while the results seem promising in, in many of these cases, we cannot rule out a placebo effect, which is normally quite high in such invasive interventions. And this does not mean that you should never do surgery. There is also a trend towards surgical procedures outside the tendon, so such as a plantaris tendon excision and also peritendinous shaving. And these procedures are most commonly performed nowadays. And then In a minority of cases, I do refer patients to an orthopedic surgeon to consider these procedures. And a recent placebo-controlled RCT suggested that peritendinous shaving might result in superior outcomes compared to placebo. So I think it's good to keep in mind that surgery could have a place in the management of this problem. Not off the table, but it's for those that, you know, it's certainly not a first line intervention. It's for those that are really, really not responding to everything that we've tried. What's the time frame? would you say, but from beginning to treatment before you say, hey, you know, it's really looking like we're not moving in the right direction. When does that first thought kind of come into your head? The timing of surgery, that's debatable. In that guideline process, the working group decided to consider this after six months of failure to conservative treatment. And internationally, a time frame of 12 months has also been mentioned after a review of the research group of Neil Miller. And I think it mainly depends on the context of the patient here again. And if the Achilles tendinopathy results in an absence from work, the choices will be different when compared to cases where the patient cannot perform their their recreational sports activities. I think you know, those contextual factors mainly yeah, influence the timing of surgery or, or other invasive treatments. I love how time and time again, you are coming back to what matters to the patient is really, really important. And there's not a cookie cutter approach. And you need to kind of take all of this evidence, all this hard work that y'all have put in to give us this really good information and then contextualize it with the person that's in front of you and have that conversation. What have we not touched on that you that you want listeners to know about Achilles tendon rehab? I think we touched on most things that are more at least 
the things that are most important <laughs> i can talk a day about this problem and uh, sometimes i do but uh, i think for for <laughs> this uh, podcast i think this is the most important things i have shared with you robert jean thank you so much for sharing your time with me with JOSPT, with all of our listeners. This has been a thorough and, and, and comprehensive kind of overlook at Achilles tendinopathy management. And I think that specifically, there's a lot of clinical takeaways here that, that our clinicians are gonna benefit from and patients literally around the world are gonna benefit from. So thank you, thank you so much. Nice to hear you and thank you for uh, also this interview. So one big last thank you to Dr. Robert Jean DeVos for sharing all of his insight, his expertise with all of us and all of you. And as always, we want to thank you for listening to JOSPT Insights. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm-hmm.